The Lord be with you. Meal tables, where status is everything, people jockeying for the best seats, comments that can cut down or lift up, these are at the heart of the parable of hospitality that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 14, but they are also the premise of the 2004 film Mean Girls. Here. This map is going to be your guide to North Shore. Now, where you sit in the cafeteria is crucial because you got everybody there. You got your freshmen, ROTC guys, preps, JV jocks, Asian nerds, cool Asians, varsity jocks, unfriendly black hotties, girls who eat their feelings, girls who don't eat anything, desperate wannabes, burnouts, the greatest people you will ever meet, and the worst. Beware of the plastic. Who are the plastics? They're team royalty. All right. Out of curiosity, how many of you have seen Mean Girls? All right, just, just a few. If you haven't seen it, it's a film worth seeing. It was actually uh, inspired by a book of sociology on teenage girls, a real book of sociology called The Queen Bees and the Wannabes. And Tina Fey adapted that research into this film. Fun fact, Tina Fey attends a Lutheran church in New York. All to say, this film, it's about, uh, it's about a character named Katie, played by Lindsay Lohan. And Katie has parents who are zoologists, who've spent her entire childhood studying animals in Africa. And so at 16 years of age, Katie enrolls in an American public school for the very first time as a high school junior. She has no understanding of American teen culture or high school dynamics. And so the very first day she shows up, she knows no one. She goes to the cafeteria at lunch and no one will let her sit with them. She ends up eating a sandwich in a bathroom stall. But the second day of school, she runs into two other misfits, two outcasts, the two people who gave this introduction. They take her under their wing and they explain the elaborate ecosystem of shame and honor that is the American high school. And at its most basic, they explain it works like this. There's a social hierarchy, and at the bottom of the social hierarchy, the lowest of the low are the mathletes. Now, mathletes are nerds who, for fun, play competitive math games. This guy. <laughs> that was me in high school. All right, yeah, you too, all right. And at the very top of the high school social hierarchy are what are called the plastics, right? These uh, well-heeled young women that they describe as high school royalty. And the people you sit with at lunch in the cafeteria determine where you are within this social hierarchy. But an incredible thing happens to Katie on her second day of school. The plastics notice her, and they notice that she's surprisingly pretty. And so they invite her to have a trial audition to see if maybe she could make the cut to be a plastic. And this trial audition is to sit with them at lunch for the whole rest of the week. But such honor comes with responsibilities. There are rules to sit with the plastics, which I will give them the honor of explaining in this clip. Having lunch with the plastics was like leaving the actual world and entering girl world. Girl World had a lot of rules. You can't wear a tank top two days in a row, and you can only wear your hair in a ponytail once a week. So I guess you pick today. Oh, and we only wear jeans or track pants on Fridays. 
Now, if you break any of these rules, you can't sit with us at lunch. Well, I mean, not just you, like, any of us. Okay, like, if I was wearing jeans today, I would be sitting over there with the art freaks. <laughs> oh, and we always vote before we ask someone to eat lunch with us, because you have to be considerate of the rest of the group. Well, I mean, you wouldn't buy a skirt without asking your friends first if it looks good on you. I wouldn't. Right. Oh, and it's the same with guys. Like, you may think you like someone, but you could be wrong. All right. So look, most of us aren't in high school, right? Like, most of us aren't living this as our daily reality. And so we might think to ourselves, well, right, I'm not forced to socialize daily with people with whom I have no interests or common values. Maybe this doesn't apply to me. But the truth of the matter is, even though we don't see it in such explicit terms, we are constantly making choices about who we associate with and why. And the parable that Jesus gives of this banquet, Jesus tells the parable as a wedding banquet. And at a wedding, to this day, there are often assigned seats. And the closer you are to the bride and groom tends to indicate how important you are to the bride and groom. In fact, right, if you imagine yourself as some random cousin who hasn't seen the bride in years, and you go to their wedding, and you go at the reception, and you choose the seat right next to the bride, the bride's going to look at you and say, hey, that's the seat for the maid of honor. Please move. Yes? We still have areas where this social dynamic plays out. But most of us aren't worrying about which seat we take at a party. Most of us are more wondering whether or not we're going to get invited to the party in the first place. And whether or not we get that invitation has to do with things like how we dress, things like what car we drive, things like how we talk, or what signs we put on our lawn for political candidates, right? All these things signal which social group we're a part of. And we may not say it explicitly like the girls do in this movie, but on a certain intuitive level, we understand that a person who wears Birkenstocks and drives a Prius is much less likely to invite over a Carhartt-wearing pickup driver, and that neither of them are going to be particularly likely to invite over the person who doesn't have a car and hasn't worn clean clothes in a week. Yeah? Those are just kind of the unwritten rules of our society. And so these questions, right, of who we associate with, why we associate with them, and what we are willing to do to associate with them, these are questions that are central to our lives at any age. And that's true for us as individuals, but it's also true for us as a community. God is very clear in the book of Exodus. When the Hebrew people escape from slavery, God says to them, I want you to be a people set apart. God says, I don't want you interacting with other cultures and other nations. I want you to stick together and just have a relationship with me, your God. And the reason God says this to the Hebrew people is, up until this point, they've just been slaves. They have no idea who they are. They haven't developed a sense of self. And so God's fear is, when they go out into the world and experience freedom for the first time, they're going to see other nations Nations that are more powerful, more prosperous, more popular. And the Hebrew people are going to say, wow, we want those things. And so they're going to trade in the relationship they have with God. They're going to trade in the identity that God has given them for the prestige they see that other nations have. And that's exactly what happens to Katie and Mean Girls. 
You see, it's not just that Katie learns how to follow the mean girl, the plastic dress code, right? She learns to only wear jeans on Friday, but it goes beyond that, right? To fit in with the plastics, Katie starts to push down who she is and become someone that she is not. She starts ignoring those two kids who first welcomed her to school. She starts lying to her parents so that she can go to parties. And there's a cute boy in her math class. And to get him to notice her, she starts failing her math test, even though Katie is really good at math. It is her favorite subject in all of school, but she is willing to pretend to be something that she is not, to be liked by someone else. And the curious thing is, it doesn't make her happy. Quite the opposite, in fact. Katie realizes that the plastics are incredibly cruel. They're constantly making cutting comments to each other that is hidden as compliments, backhanded compliments, right? The, the plastics, they collect this book in which they write down all the secrets they've heard about all the other girls in the junior class. They call it their burn book. And, and the leader of the Mean Girls, Regina, when she hears that Katie likes this boy in her math class, Regina decides that she's going to kiss this boy and claim him for her own boyfriend. But as much as Katie realizes that the plastics are terrible people, she can't help but be drawn into them to want to become one of them for reasons that I'll let her explain. Yes. The weird thing about hanging out with Regina was that I could hate her, and at the same time, I still wanted her to like me. Okay. You have really good eyebrows. Thanks. Move. Same with Gretchen. The meaner Regina was to her, the more Gretchen tried to win Regina back. She knew it was better to be in the plastics, hating life, than to not be in at all. Because being with the plastics was like being famous. People looked at you all the time, and everybody just knew stuff about you. That new girl moved here from Africa. I saw Katie Heron wearing army pants and flip-flops, so I bought army pants and flip-flops. I hear Regina George is dating Aaron Samuels again. The two were seen canoodling at Chris Isles' Halloween party, and they've been inseparable ever since. I was a woman possessed. I spent about 80% of my time talking about Regina, and the other 20% of the time I was praying for someone else to bring her up so I could talk about her more. She's not even that good looking if you really look at her. All right. So through the prophet Jeremiah, we hear God say to the people of Jerusalem, what wrong did your ancestors find in me? that they went far from me, and they sought after worthless things and became worthless themselves. God could just as well be saying that to Katie in this movie. Right? God could be saying to her, what wrong did you find in the person that I made you to be, that you went far from that person and you went after worthless things and became worthless yourself? But God's not saying that to Katie. God's saying that to the people of Jerusalem because there was a time God remembers when the Hebrew people were set apart, when they were different from all the other nations in the world because they relied completely on God to get them through the wilderness for 40 years. But then something happened because when God set those people apart, he taught them how to be holy. 
God taught them that to be holy was first and foremost to worship God alone above everything else. But part of being holy had a social dimension. You see, when the people of Israel came out of slavery in Egypt, it was an incredibly egalitarian society because when they came out of slavery, every single one of them was an escaped slave. They owned nothing but what they could carry on their backs. No one was better than anyone else. They had no kings, only God. They had no rulers, only judges. And God's laws that God gives them in the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy are intended to help preserve this sense of egalitarianism and freedom within the Hebrew people. Because God knows, look, once they get to the promised land, every single family is going to get their own plot of land. And so they all start off the same there. But over time, some people are going to be more successful than others. But to make sure that people don't slip back into the old ways, the ways other nations do it of enslaving some people so that other people can be rich, God puts rules in place. God says, okay, every 50 years, you're going to have a Sabbath of Sabbaths. It's going to call the Jubilee. If someone has gotten so poor that they had to sell their family farm, on the 50th year, you give them back their family farm. Or if someone becomes so poor that they have to sell themselves and become a slave, on the seventh year, you will set every slave free. And to say, even while they're a slave, they have rules to protect them. The Sabbath that God teaches us includes a Sabbath day for servants and slaves. And even for your beasts of burden, God says, they too deserve a day of rest. Even the land is given a year of rest every seven years, left to lie fallow. God puts these rules in place so that the people of Israel can maintain that equality and that freedom before God that they had in the wilderness. But a curious thing happens. As soon as they get established in the promised land, they start looking around at how other nations run their things. And the leaders in charge say, hey, we want to be like those leaders. And so the priests, they stop worshiping God and they start worshiping the foreign god of Baal. The political leaders... They cease being judges and they start becoming kings, a hereditary dynasty that they can pass down from father to son. And the economic leaders, historians can tell you, it appears they never once followed this policy of giving people their land back. Once they got someone's family farm, they weren't letting go of that. Because they saw other nations and they saw those other nations, people could be rich by not following God's law. They could become powerful by not following God's law. They could lift themselves up by climbing on the backs of others. And it may mean that they have to forsake their God and, and destroy their people and defile their land. But they got worldly prestige, and it was worth it to them. And so God says to the people of Jerusalem, through the prophet Jeremiah, my people have committed two evils. The first one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And the second one is, they have dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns, which can hold no water. Now a cistern, it's a water tank. It's just a big tank for holding water. And what God is saying is, if you trust me, if you let me tell you who you are and what you're worth, you will never run dry. You will never be empty because I am a fountain of living water. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to pretend to be anything that you're not. 
I will always pour my love into you. But God says, if instead you want to find your self-worth based on the expectations of others, well, you're going to have to fill up an empty cistern on your own. You're going to have to fill up that cistern with self-worth by constantly trying to please the people around you. But God says, bad news, that cistern, that water tank, it's got a crack in it. And no matter how much you try to please those people around you, that tank of self-worth and love, it's never going to be full. Now, we live here in Chico, and we know how important water is in a hot place like Israel, that if you don't have water, you will die. And this is what God is saying to the people of Jerusalem. You have traded in a relationship with me, a relationship with who I made you to be, for trying to live up to the expectations and the, the status of your neighbors. God is saying, you have traded me the fountain of living water for cracked cisterns, and if you keep this up, you will die. You will be destroyed. Over the next two months, we will be following this prophet Jeremiah, and we will see in the ways in which Jerusalem's decisions lead to Jerusalem's destruction. But today we're going to leave Jerusalem right there because we're just going to focus on Katie. And Katie does reach this place of destruction. Because you see, Katie isn't just satisfied with being a part of the plastics. She wants to be the queen bee herself. So she trades in the entirety of who God made her to be, that fountain of living water. She trades it in for the crack cistern of trying to find the best seat at the cafeteria table. She takes Regina on at her own game of fake smiles and cruel gossip and boyfriend stealing. And Regina retaliates. Regina retaliates by taking that burn book full of all the secrets of the junior girls in that high school and publishing it. Regina distributes it to everyone in school, and then Regina says, Katie wrote it. And chaos is unleashed. Chaos is unleashed on a level which I can't really describe, but this movie will show you quite well. Let's see. Wild. It was full tilt jungle madness. And it wasn't going away. up to people and realized they were just talking about you? Have you ever had it happen 60 times in a row? I have. Wild. The assembly continues on and, and there's a moment in which every single girl is invited to confess the ways in which they've contributed to the toxic culture of this high school. All the girls take time to acknowledge the ways in which they have tried to fill their own cracked cistern by stealing water from the girl next to her. But Katie doesn't, and Regina doesn't. 
Instead, their fight continues. They take it outside, and their shouting match is only silenced when Regina is hit by a school bus. She doesn't die, but she's badly injured. But a rumor starts, a rumor starts that it's Katie who pushed Regina in front of, front of the bus, right? It's not true, but that's how the school works, right? Katie is humiliated. She is vilified and ostracized. She realized that in attempting to exalt herself, she has been humbled. And so she repents. She repents of trying to be a plastic. She repents of trying to be anything that she is not. She stops pretending to be bad at math and starts acing tests again. She apologizes to the people that she's hurt. She takes full responsibility for the burn book, even though she didn't write it all. But she takes the responsibility because, in her own words, she's trying something new, not talking about other people. And as punishment for all the things she's done, her math teacher says, this is what you're going to do. You're going to join the mathletes, the most despised group in all of school. But a curious thing happens. When Katie joins the mathletes, they don't care what she looks like. They just care that she likes math. And when Katie goes to the math competition instead of getting ready for the spring fling dance like all everyone else, she has another realization, which is that as she's competing with another girl, she can think of all sorts of mean things to say about that girl's appearance, but no matter how much she cuts down that girl, it won't help her be better at math. The only thing she can do in that moment is be the best version of who God made her to be. She realizes she can't fill up her cistern by stealing from others. All she can do is drink from the font of living water of the God who made her who she is. Jesus tells us today that we shouldn't be fighting for the best seats at a banquet, but then he goes on to tell us when we are the ones who throw a banquet. Don't just invite your friends or your relatives or your rich neighbors, you know, people you might do business with, people who could pay you back. Jesus says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind people who can't repay you because they will bless you and you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now in the ancient world, yes, people with physical disability had no social or economic status. Praise be to God, that is not true now. But Jesus' point still stands. Jesus is inviting us to not just spend our time with people who can do something for us, people who give us more prestige or status by hanging out with them. Jesus tells us to spend time with people who can do nothing for us because the way we treat people who can do nothing for us reveals who we truly are. The way we treat people who can do nothing for us reveals who we are now and it reveals who we will find ourselves to be on the day of resurrection. And there is no greater gift of freedom than knowing who you are and being confident in that. The mathletes, after the math competition, they remind Katie that she doesn't have to be defined by her fiasco with the plastics. And so they encourage her, even though she's grounded, to go to the spring fling dance anyway. 
And so she rolls up with the other mathletes. They're all wearing their mathlete letterman jackets and everyone else is in ball gowns, but they show up. And a curious thing has happened because there was a vote to see who would become the spring fling king and queen. And as kids voted in that high school, a lot of kids voted for the person who they thought pushed Regina into the bus. <laughs> they voted for Katie. And so I want to show you how she responds to becoming the spring fling queen. Wow, thanks. Um, well, half the people in this room are mad at me, and the other half only like me because they think I pushed somebody in front of a bus. So that's not good. No, it's not really required of you to make a speech. I'm almost done, I swear. To uh, all the people whose feelings that got hurt by the burn book, I'm really sorry. You know, I've never been to one of these things before. And when I think about how many people wanted this and how many people cried over it and stuff, I mean, I think everybody looks like royalty tonight. Look at Jessica Lopez. That dress is amazing. And Emma Gerber, I mean, that hairdo must have taken hours and you look really pretty. So, why is everybody stressing over this thing? I mean, it's just plastic. It's really just... <laughs> Share it. A piece for Gretchen Wieners, a partial spring fling queen. A piece for Janice Ian. Seriously, most people just take the crown and go. And a piece for Regina George. She fractured her spine, and she still looks like a rock star. Thank you. And some for everybody else. Siblings in Christ, we are invited to a wedding. It is the wedding between God and humanity in Jesus. For in Jesus, God and humanity become one flesh. Jesus is the groom of the great cosmic wedding, but he doesn't have a seat reserved for only the best of the best. No, this groom at this wedding, he goes in search of the poor and the crippled, the lame and the blind. He goes in search of the outcasts and the misfits and the nerds, and on the cross, he goes in search of those who suffer and die. He comes to each and every single one of us and says, friend, move up higher. Jesus gives us the place of honor at this wedding banquet. But Jesus goes even further. He makes us the best man and he makes us his bride. Jesus bestows on us every single honor, every single place of pride because Jesus is the fountain of living water and he wants nothing more than to pour limitless love into our hearts. So that full of such love, we who have received such honor can give it away. Can give it away to the people who need it, who need to know that they too are loved by God. And in giving away such honor, we are honored all the more. Today, after worship, we have a potluck. 
and you will have a decision about which table to sit at, who you're going to sit with. And so I invite you to use the potluck today as an opportunity to live out the faith to which Christ calls us, which is to say, after worship, by all means, say hello to your friends, but you can catch up with them any day of the week. Today you have an opportunity to sit with someone who otherwise you wouldn't sit with. You have the opportunity to get to know someone who can do nothing for you in return other than introduce you to another member of God's family and to help you know yourself, not as a cracked cistern, but as part of the fountain of living water, overflowing with love and sharing it with the world. Amen. <laughs>